Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. This is the first show of the first edition of the Art Hour for 2018, uh, which is going to be solo. Vasiliki Zanako by herself <laughs> uh, and the lovely people listening to us. And today we have the honor to have the first guest of the year, which is the photorealistic painter and photographer, Stefan Graf. Hello. You are Vasiliki, yes? And I am number 22. Let me explain. Last night, I received a telephone call. They said, please, can you come tomorrow in the morning for recording your voice at the number 22? I say, yes, I am coming. So, hello, and it is nice to meet you. My name is Professore. Many people they come to me and they say, are you Professore, the scientist, or are you Mr. Stefan Graf, the artist? And I say, what is the difference between a scientist and an artist? This is my question today. So, Vasiliki, would you prefer to speak with Mr. Stefan Graf, the artist, or professore, the scientist. May I suggest that while you are deciding this, you can play one of my pieces of music. Thank you very much. Yes, I prepare especially for you and for your listeners today.
fait. So this was the track entitled Fessore Like a Pro by Professore. Um, the introduction that the artist or the scientist decided uh, to put in me, I think it introduces the challenges that I have to face in the year ahead. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was a very dynamic uh, introduction. Thank you very much. My uh, pleasure. Um, I took my time while I was listening to this um, amazing meditative, amazingly meditative track, Face uh, Array Like a Pro, uh, and to answer to the question, whom am I going to interview today? I have to say to our dear audience that um, in front of me I have Professor. <laughs> Uh, dressed up uh, with his uh, work. Um, um. Actually, Professori has left and has left me to speak for him. Okay. And I am the artist Stefan Graf. So we have to welcome at the studio the artist Stefan Graf. Stefan I'd like Graf. to tell you something about that piece of music. Yes, please. Which is really uh, Do Re Mi Professore interpretation, which is meant to be a sort of meditation, um, designed as, a, as a, an installation piece and a performance piece, whereby you'd have the, the four syllables of his name um, spoken by four reel-to-reels in each corner of the gallery, um, turning in a very slow motion, which would create a meditative effect in itself. Um, this was the idea of the piece, really. So what was your aim uh, with regards to your audience to, to get them in a very kind of relaxed, meditative uh, state? 
Yes, exactly. And the idea was that uh, Professore would be in the gallery also performing the mm. tambour, which is the instrument that you hear in the background, okay. the drone instrument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, and Stefan, please mm. let us know what led you to to the creation of this alter ego called Professore. Well, I was interested in the idea of working as somebody else within myself uh, to see how this would affect my perspective on my work. Um, and I think I chose a scientist because I was interested how scientists could have an instant sort of uh, respect, a high regard in society, um, often compared to a slightly more uh, paranoid uh, effect that an artist might have in society where people would be a little suspicious of an artist. So I, I was looking at the order of these, this sort of reordering of, uh, of, of values in society and um, trying to understand what the difference was between a scientist and an artist. Uh, because after all, they work in many, many ways very similarly. Mm -hmm. I mean, arts and sciences are, have always been linked together, uh, to my knowledge and understanding. And um, it, it, it has been an interaction. So as... As professor, what were your your outcomes of your experiments, or what were your experiments focusing on? Well, professor is an unusual character. He's wavering constantly between a sort of ingenious scientist making these fairly obscure experiments, um, but also teetering on complete failure and. Uh, so this was the sort of approach where you're not really sure whether you believe in him or he's either a genius or a complete failure. So he oscillates between these two extremes. And as an artist, you photograph and depicted Professore. Uh, so it's a series of photographic works at the same time. So you, yeah, the as, main as far as I can recall, you have created kind of a whole mm. environment in your studio. Uh, yes, at that time, my, my studio was transformed into a sort of laboratory, a vintage laboratory, mm -hmm. uh, where these um, experiments were, were taking place. And usually they were recorded through film, through photography, sometimes through painting. And um, so, yes, he, he, um, he often came across as uh, somebody who was very difficult to understand, who couldn't quite place him. And... Um, and it creates a challenge also uh, for the audience, whether they're no longer sure whether this is actually Stefan Graf or whether this is Professori. The, the exhibition, the main show that I did with this work was in Istanbul. And uh, the gallery happened to be called The Operating Room, uh, which was next door hospital. Okay. So it created a double layer of this, uh, this, this, this sort of ambiguity. And you went to the local society and get photographed with uh, pharmacies, or um... no? A lot of the a lot of the photographic shoots took place at a, uh, in a in a place called uh, the Bakerkoy Hastanasi, which is one of the oldest mental institutions uh, hospitals in uh, in Turkey. And uh, they were very kind to me. They allowed me to use various parts of the the hospital for my photographic shoots. Mm -hmm. um, so the environment was perfect for, the, for creating this sort of imagery that I had in mind. 
Uh, but I would like to go a little bit back in time. So Professori was yes. a, a project that you, uh, an alter ego that you created in 2007, correct? Yes, around that time. But your concern with uh, the research of uh, identity uh, starts uh, way earlier. Yes. I mean, you're. I have to say to, to inform because, I mean, the audience, I don't think, might have this information that you're mm -hmm. a self-taught artist. Mm -hmm. And um, so let, let's get it from the start. You're a self-taught artist. You started experimenting or what it was that kind of uh, attracted you to experiment with media and uh, what was the urge within you that led you to and why, why you selected s specific media like photography, for instance, and not something else. Well, I, I was always fascinated in photography, but actually with, when it came to painting, my first media really was uh, using earth and sand and pigments and uh, this kind of organic materials. Um, I was particularly inspired by ancient Egypt at that time, at the beginning of my career. And, um, and so this was a sort of a vehicle for trying to understand uh, issues of identity already even then, because I was... I was interested in the idea of excavating the mind to sort of try to dive into the subconscious and uh, create abstract paintings which, which, uh, which, which related to that. So Was it I, something that it was following Freud's view, uh, more a kind of psychoanalytical tools that you used basically, of, of excavation, of you know, trying to dig into one's soul? So we were trying to discovering... Um, hidden experience, experiences. Yes. Well, Freud, Freud had the concept of the uncanny, mm -hmm. which was uh, the idea that uh, what is private is not necessarily just hidden from others, but it's also hidden from the self. Mm. So, in fact, he, he referred to the uncanny as being robbed of one's eyes. And this came later in my work where I started putting black boxes over people's eyes, obscuring their eyes. Mm. and uh, hiding their eyes so that uh, created another layer in the painting, almost as if there was a part of the painting that had been omitted. Okay, so you, we, you just introduced your black book series uh, of yeah, paintings, I think. Yeah, it might be clearer if I, if I explain what was happening earlier in my work. Uh, I would like to do a break, go to some music, mm -hmm. and we'll come back with Stefan Graf and the black book series.
Stefan Graf, what would we just listen before we go to the Black Spoke series? What would we just listen oh. to? Oh, um, try to fade out a bit slower. <laughs> <laughs> it's too such fast. a beautiful piece of music. That's by Richard Horowitz. Um, and it was music written for the Sheltering Sky, the movie, uh, which had a great impact on me. In fact, um, after seeing that movie, I went to live in Morocco for five years. So. Mm. Um, but uh, Richard is an amazing musician. He plays the ney and the flute. The ney is a very simple North African flute, which is the most simple piece of bamboo you could imagine. Um, and the sound that it makes is sort of reminiscent of the, the sound of the wind of the desert, the Sahara. Um, so yeah, that's that's where that music comes from. Uh, you have spent lots of time in North Africa. So apart from living in Marrakesh from 2001 for a few years, maybe five, six years, before that you visited many times um, Egypt. Yeah. And uh, you explored, as far as I know, on um, the culture, tradition, mummification, and the yeah the ancient Egyptian culture, and you created based on that um, uh, a series of of works, uh, the earthworks and the mummifications. Yeah, that's right. Um, at that time, I was uh, completely obsessed with uh, Egyptian mummification. Um, I used to spend a lot of time at the British Museum studying. Uh, the mummies there, and um, and it's quite an extraordinary thing, um, the Egyptian mummy. I mean, when you see it in the museum in a display case, first of all, you're sort of taken over by the beautiful bandage wrappings that the, the mummy has, but then it suddenly strikes you that there's a human body there, and that's that's very difficult to to to, to conceive, really that you're standing in a museum and there's a human body. So I, I became... Which has been in this bandage for 2,000 years. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so so this started making me think very much about the different layers of what we see and what is hidden. And, um, and so I started reflecting this in my work at the time. I started mummifying objects, uh, mummifying letters, journals, writings, photographs, things like that, and sort of burying them inside the work. Um, and then this led to uh, another series, a photographic work of yours, which is called Constrictions. Well, actually, the Constrictions was happening at the same time, and the oh. Constrictions were very much informed by the mummification process also, sort of uh, wrapping bodies with ropes, and uh, actually very similar sort of textures to the, to, to the, mummified, uh, the mummified objects. Um, but what it also led to was my black box series, which became the main focus of my work for many years and, mm -hmm. and, and that I still do today. Um, and in the black box series, I was really covering the eyes um, with these black boxes. Of your um, subjects. And it was very much a, um, another way of conceiving the mummified uh, paintings, which I was making, because... In those paintings, you had objects wrapped, and I started visualizing those objects within the paintings becoming sort of black boxes, um, which you couldn't see. And the more I painted, the more I realized that it was all about layers, all about covering, covering over and uh, obscuring elements of a picture. Uh, so it's interesting when you're a painter that 
much is actually hidden underneath other layers of paint. It's not simply what you see, but what's actually also hidden behind. Okay, let's get to the next track. So this is Shadow from Brian Eno. And why you selected this track, Stefan? Yeah, this is an amazing piece of music. In fact, the whole album is, uh, is really remarkable. It's uh, an ambient album called On Land. And I started listening to this music and became very addicted to it and always had it on in the studio. And When I was doing which body of work? This was the earth paintings, the mummifications, mm. the early work. And as soon as I would put on this music, it would almost put me into a trance. And it would put me into the mode of just connecting with what I was making, sort of um, taking away layers and going deeper into my unconscious. And that was, that, 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 the, the music became instrumental in my work. Uh, at one point, I wouldn't be painting unless this music was on. Is this linked to Young's shadow, the idea of the shadow? Which kind of a kind of it's about it's talking about the dark side of one's personality. Is that linked to it somehow? Jung Jung's idea of the the shadow, yes, absolutely. It's very similar to Freud's concept of the uncanny, whereby many emotions become repressed and and buried deeper into the subconscious. So it related to what I was doing, painting and making work with earth and sand and pigments, because I was creating layers and, and uh, sometimes scraping back those layers, almost as if I wanted to reveal to myself repressed emotions. But with the black box paintings, what, it, what, what exactly... You want so let, let's explain to the audience that the black box paintings you hide with rectangular boxes. Yeah. Um, the the eyes of your subjects, and you have created a huge body of work. Um, and later on, you created the series called Banquets, Banquets, uh, Banquets where you yeah. yeah, where you had a kind of uh, four meters uh, photorealistic paintings, four to two meters photorealistic paintings. Um, yeah, sometimes up, with, up to six huge, meters, very yeah. big scenes, very panoramic paintings exactly. where you'd have hundreds of figures. Um, and, I, and I chose banquets uh, as a subject matter because it was one of those sort of images, uh, photographs that you would find from the old days where you'd have uh, hundreds of people in a, in a room sort of dying together. And I loved the repetition of the black box over each of these figures' eyes. Um, created an incredible repetition uh, almost a claustrophobic effect of having so many figures. 
Yeah. And is the black box to somehow give uh, a passage through one soul or to block the communication between the subjects? And this, this subject usually seem that they're not communicating with one another uh, from the paintings that I have seen and I have in my, um, in my memory. Yeah, um, I, think, um, I think Kubrick was a big influence for me uh, with The Shining because I, I, I was interested in the way that the past and the present converge in in that film and especially in the ballroom scenes, in the banqueting scenes. Mm. Um, and for me, I mean, the, the black box can be viewed in many different ways. There's many ways to interpret it. It's almost like an open door. Um, I'm interested in the idea of the void, uh, which is really the unattainable, or the unknown. And um, So in a way, it's bidirectional. So it can be an access point or it can be... Exactly, where the past and the present uh, come together. Mm-hmm. So there is a defacing element. It's uh, it's uh, like a part of the picture that needs to be unseen or an experience that needs to be unseen. And you have some black boxes that there are some paintings where the black boxes are connected to one another with uh, black lines of paint. So what do you yeah. try to achieve with that? Well, what occurred to me was with the black box paintings, every individual is separate is disconnected from the other and we're talking about scenes where you might have six or eight hundred people in a painting painted with great detail the figures in the foreground being life-size and then almost uh, in the background the faces being the size of a fingernail a very panoramic scene but all these people would be somehow disconnected from each other and then i felt that there needed to be some sort of a connection. So I started, instead of doing black boxes, I started dripping the black paint across the canvas, going through the eyes, and uh, almost like an electrical circuit, everyone suddenly became connected. Um, yeah, that, that was the idea behind it. Um, after making a very meticulous photorealist painting, the black drip was something, an element that was completely spontaneous, um, that... Uh, that would just rip through the picture. And there was almost a sort of defacing element to it. Um, yeah, that's that's really how I came to that. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the next track and we're gonna be back soon with Stefan Graf and more about his art. Music is a big prayer.
track of your selection it was Nightwalker from uh, Trenton Mola uh, but I would like to, to stick a little bit on your black box series and the actual development of this body of work uh, which uh, as, as I understand it was uh, a body of work called um, Milfei Yes, milfeuille. That. Um, so let's let's explain a little bit. Could could you please explain what a milfeuille is, apart from the delicious uh, French pastry? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I I started making these paintings on strips of wood. Um, what happened was I was retouching one of my banquet images one day, and using quite an old computer, there was some sort of a glitch, and uh, when I printed out the picture, it became completely mangled and mashed up, reorganized in a way that I could never have possibly conceived. But when I saw the picture, I said to myself, well, that's the way to paint the picture. That's how it should look. It shouldn't be like the old banquets. This is the new way of doing it. So I started trying to figure out how to do that. And the only way to do that really was to divide the painting into many, many strips uh, of wood. Um, making the painting on the wood and then moving the wood around. So, in fact, the, the, the effect was remarkable because the painting started looking like a mechanical image, um, as if it had been, you know, generated by some sort so of a digital it was, program. Apart from digital programming, it was, it, it was becoming... It, it was have, it's having a more structural... Uh, three-dimensional yeah more sense. sculptural more sculptural look to it yeah for sure yeah. Um, so it was a beautiful way of working for me because I would make the painting but usually the painting once it's finished that's that's the work uh, but with the millefeuille effect that that was the, the end of the painting would actually just be the beginning of the work because then I would start reorganizing the painting with all these strips of wood and um, and I could really offset them and uh, interfere with the original image that I'd painted as much as I felt like. I mean, you, you mean in, in a period of time, so whenever you like, uh, you can actually change. Uh, well, yes, you can. I mean, uh, th that happened recently that I happened to 
um, reorder a picture that I'd had ha- hanging on my wall for a while. But but usually no, I I I find the configuration that I want, and then um, that's the end of the work, and the work shouldn't be changed after that. Yeah. But you also started moving around uh, these uh, slices slices of wood, creating a more pixelated uh, image. So yeah. what, what, what exactly did you do there? Why, why did you do, what was the influence? It's about the digitized era and the glitches that they can come to answer. <laughs> yeah, but for me also there was, um, there was an aspect of doing this to a picture which related to certain ideas in psychology. For example, um, a portrait of somebody reorganized in this way could very much relate to a sort of split personality hmm. um, or a mistaken identity. Um, there's one painting I made of Colin Campbell Ross, who was uh, about a hundred years ago in Australia. He was um, he was convicted of a murder and subsequently executed. But uh, sometime not so long ago, actually about ten years ago, they uncovered evidence that proved that Colin Ross was in fact an innocent man. So in my portrait of Colin. Um, the, in fact, that's a mechanized piece where the, where the pieces of wood are actually moving in slow motion in different directions. So it's as if you can never fix the face. Uh, the painting becomes a painting about mistaken identity. About the, what, how, so it's more about how one's identity is not accepted or misinterpreted by, uh, Misinterpreted, uh, yes. But misinterpreted by, by society, basically. Yes. Um, because Colin, for instance, knew that he was uh, not um, guilty. Yes. And, um, and that painting of Colin uh, brought me very interested to the idea of mugshots um, and how we view mugshots. Um, so, this so you you went to a body of uh, researching and examining uh, uh, people who were accused for crimes. Exactly, um, you know the the physiognomy um, is an interesting theme because in the old days they used to think that you could actually tell if a person was a criminal by their physical characteristics. Uh, imagine that. I mean, if they had high cheekbones or a a broad nose, then they were a convict just by the way they looked. So, yes, yeah, so that this became a very interesting uh, investigation into in, into faces, really. And what exactly did you do with mugshots? Uh, well, the mugshot series. To be honest with you, I woke up one day and I had this this desire to make a record, a photographic record of all the people around me, the people that I knew. Um, and I was looking at the idea that, uh, and challenge their identity says <laughs> everyone I know is going to turn into a criminal. <laughs> I'm going to turn everyone to a criminal. I'm going to accuse them for something without being accused. Well, yeah, I, 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 I can see where you're coming from. Well, the, the, the mugshots were sort of, um, post-truth portraits because, um, they on they have an appearance of looking like identity photographs, but in fact um, the the names of the people that were written underneath their heads was turned into an anagram. So they were given fake names, if you like. So they were no longer really identity photographs. They were they they, they were um, 
false identity photographs. But uh, collectively, they started look li looking like some sort of um, uh, Victorian album of, of, of different uh, human physiognomies. So you started inviting people in your studio and photographing them, saying uh, what to them. So wh wh what you invited them to do? Well, the, the, the series of work was called Smiling is Prohibited. And in fact, I wanted to photograph everyone in a very neutral way. I wanted to get away from this idea of the selfie, uh, where people would have a sort of cheesy smile. And uh, and in fact, this, the subjects never had any control over the, the way they looked. They were, they were photographed in a very neutral way. Um, and this was the main point, that they weren't allowed to smile. So, in fact, just having that simple, simple approach and having these people staring directly into the lens created very arresting images. Um, yeah, so this also made all the, all the work have a sort of homogeny, where every portrait was done in the same way. Collectively, it became a very interesting uh, group of portraits. Like anthropological uh, research, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I maintain that in the future, the work will become even more relevant, more interesting. When you look back at gen in generations um, and you have this data, these faces with uh, the date of birth and so on, it starts to become some... Uh, sort of a, an analysis of a social group. Are these work photographs? They're, the portraits are made photographically and then they're produced as uh, silkscreen images. But I'm, I'm not using silkscreen as a process to, to run off many copies. In fact, all of the images are unique. Uh, mm. I really used silkscreen because I was interested in the idea of the dot, turning a face into a series of dots. So you pixelated everyone. Well, actually, not pixelated because that's a digital, a digital process. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the bitmap or the dot uh, is an analog process um, that they used to use in uh, in newspapers in the olden times for printing newspapers. So the so the mugshots um, they were also um, triggered by other cases that I came across, such as uh, I'm sure many people have heard of the case of Jean Charles Menendez. Um, who was a Brazilian person in London who, um, who actually was um, shot down by the police and killed. Um, and this was another case of mistaken identity. And so, well, yeah, once again, the idea of um, mistaken, the identity. mistaken identity or, or the mugshot. The misinterpretation of an identity and the false accusation or this kind of... Uh uh, theme is coming again and again to your work. Uh, is right. this related at all to uh, to what we experience lately with this all this uh, selfie culture? Um, well, it it really goes against this whole selfie culture because because the selfie culture is is to do with the beautification of uh, of society. Um, I'm trying to get back to the roots. And, uh, so reveal the the truth. Yes, in a way. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Of, of oneself. Uh, okay. But at the same time, I created a, a, a series of photo fits. So with this very large library of uh, images that I created with the mugshots, I started to splice people together to take this person's eyes, that person's nose, and put together faces. Um, 
in a sort of photo fit way, which um, which which was actually about creating new identities, and uh, and this had a lot to do with with the refugee crisis, with the idea of racial prejudice. These faces that you that I that I started creating, you couldn't tell where they were from, what race they were, and so it created this sort of challenge of how how people would respond to them. Like a homo universalis having all features and characteristics that one society could incorporate. Yeah, perhaps. maybe, maybe. Yeah, let's get the next track, and we will continue with Stefan Graf and his art.
So Stefan Graf, uh, you work, oh, but the majority of your, your work is around identity and concealment, as far as I understand. But you challenge also the circles of fine art and um, the value of, of art uh, with a series of work called The Catalogue of Errors. Um, yeah. So basically, this is to explain to our audiences a series of paintings uh, on diptych panels. Um, yeah, the, 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 the diptychs, well, basically, they would pretty much look like double pages from, um, from a Sotheby's or Christie's catalogue. So mm -hmm. on the left-hand side, you'd have a text giving you the description of the artwork, the name of the artist, the provenance, and so on. And on the right, you'd have the, the picture of the, the, the masterpiece. So um, basically, I, I uh, rearranged this slightly so that I would do a painting of this masterpiece on the right-hand side. Generally, it would be a very, very well-known artist, the instantly recognizable, iconic work. But on the left-hand side, I would silkscreen the text, and, um, and it would be of a totally different work by a different artist. So you'd have perhaps a... Uh, a Picasso with a Magritte and so forth, you know. So you have to be fully aware, otherwise you had been all of the work and the description, otherwise you had been um, delusioned that this body of work belongs to another artist. Yeah, you might do a double take. Um, but in fact, what was interesting was that many of the descriptions would fit um, the other work of art. So mm -hmm. you'd have this, these connections made. Did you try to uh, give this work as Sotheby's and Christie's? <laughs> Did you attempt to approach them? <laughs> I, I'm sure they'd be very willing to, to take your work. Yeah. But the interesting thing for me in terms of identity is actually where do I fit into that? Yeah. Um, you know, in the case that I gave, in the example, that you have the Magritte and you have the Picasso, but actually do you have the Stefan Graf within it as well? I'm not sure. But that's not really the point anyway. Um, and you, uh, you, you exhibited these works at Minrech Gallery back in 2010. Uh, and then... Uh, I think it was a bit later, 2016. Than, later than that. Yeah. Yes, 2016, mm -hmm. apologies. And then, um, when exactly did you work on the uh, glitching paintings? The glitch paintings I remember very well because actually it was on the eve of the Brexit votes. Ah, and this was quite recently. Yeah, and this this, this was another yeah. another form of um, another another type of glitch, uh, as opposed to the millefeuille paintings, which could also be seen as a glitch. But uh, I remember I, w I was watching an interview with Cameron uh, just on the eve of the vote. One night before, there was this terrible electrical storm, thunder and lightning, and as I was watching the the the, the television, the image started to glitch. And um, and I was fascinated by by the patterns that are occurring because it was it looked much like a millefeuille painting that I was doing, and also kind of like a black box where you'd have pixelation areas turning into to, to rectangular boxes. So I started photographing the television, and uh, from there I started making these paintings based on those photographs, sort of highly saturated color paintings. That's how it came about. Yeah. 
Um, I, it seems that we're running out of time. So uh, my last question will be, uh, Stefan Graf, uh, do you have other alter egos? <laughs> I mean, I see you here in front of me as Professor. Um, yeah. <laughs> are there any characters or do, do, what do you think that this there investigation is an, is of one, identity will there, do? There is one other character that should be mentioned and that is Dr. Albert Frick. Mm. And Dr. Albert Frick um, is, is, is an ethnobotanist who was working in Africa. Um, he predates Professor in this respect. Um, oh, at what time? Is contemporary? No, 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 no. He was there in, in the uh, 19th century. And um, he, he, we don't know that much about Frick. Um, he was studying in Africa. He married an African woman. He went native. And soon afterwards, the records about him disappear. Um, he vanished, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's believed that his, his, uh, his African wife, members of her tribe, um, ate him, basically. So Sounds he, really brutal and kind of, uh, yeah. That's what we suspect. And so not that much is known about him. But we have these beautiful Collodian photographs mm -hmm. uh, which show him, sometimes him and his wife, um, uh, from that time in Africa, yeah. Stefan Graf, uh, professor, or <laughs> um, I don't know Frick. to whom to <laughs> Albert Freak. <laughs> I don't know to whom to refer to. Um, which are your next uh, shows, or where we can see your work next? Well, I'll be exhibiting next month at uh, Muchacha Gallery in Rome. Uh, it's going to be a large exhibition. Many works. And, as far uh, as I know, is the twenty second of March. Exactly, that's yeah. the opening. Uh -huh. um, and I'll be showing uh, a large installation of the mugshots amongst uh, amongst other works from different bodies of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Stefan Graf, Professor <laughs> Doctor Albert Frick, uh, thank you very thank much. Thank you, Vasiliki. All. Uh, for your time, for being My here pleasure. with us and sharing all this valuable information about your work. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go to the last track and this is how we enter the new year. Thank Have you. Have a lovely day. Thank Goodbye. you. Goodbye.